Tonight's service, um, as you probably noticed, follows uh, the story of the Bible. Um, We've been reading texts thus far that talk about the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ, and uh, we'll read after this text a few texts that tell us about the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus' first advent. Uh, We heard already in, in Genesis 3, 8 through 19, right after Adam and Eve thrust the world into sin, Uh, that God didn't leave them out to dry. Rather, God promised that one day um, He would send forth an offspring from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and thereby undo the curse that was rendered at the fall. And then in the text we just read, Micah 5, Isaiah 7, and Isaiah 9, more specificity was added to those promises. And now in Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, we continue to hear about the promise of Christ's coming into the world and what that would mean for you and me. Now, while we look back on the incarnation of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago, the prophet Isaiah, just to orient us to this text, he was looking forward to Christ's advent about 700 years before he was born. Isaiah stood at a period of time in history well before Christ's birth, and yet what we're going to hear is how he declares with remarkable power and theological insight the implications that Christ's advent would carry not only for us, but also for the future of the world. And so here now, the word of the Lord, this is Isaiah 11, one through nine. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. The text is also on the screen and printed in your bulletin too. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, back in November of 2016, would have been about five years ago, news began to trickle in um, from eastern Tennessee that a wildfire near the small towns of Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, Tennessee, right around Smoky Mountain National Park, if you know where that is, was beginning to rage. Uh, Now, at that time in 2016, I I didn't live in that area, uh, but I had spent time in that area, even just a few months prior to when the fires broke out. And so, I was concerned hearing this news of a wildfire raging, how that region that I'd grown to love would be affected. Well, as the days wore on, footage began to emerge of of fire, terrifying images of fire racing down the rolling mountains of Smoky Mountain National Park, uh, really really close to some of the places that I'd spent time in. 
Uh, cabins that once dotted the, the mountainscape were, were going up in flames one by one, and at least a few local residents posted um, images, uh, dash cam footage of their herring escape through mountain roads as fires raged around them. Now, in the end, these fires were, were certainly not the largest ever recorded, but there was a significant toll to it. It was about $2 billion in damage, uh, 2,460 structures destroyed, and more importantly, 14 lives were lost. Well, last month, my family and I, we, we took a trip back to Gatlinburg for the first time in nearly five years since those fires. And while you could still see the scarring on the mountains from about five years ago, we also noticed that the landscape was just starting its recovery. Cabins looked like they were in various stages of being rebuilt, and foliage was also returning. There were young saplings rising all around through the once charred uh, soil. In fact, I read recently after our, our visit that scientists discovered a, a species of tree known as the American chestnut, which they, they thought to be nearly extinct in the region, and found that it not only survived the fire, but that that species was now re-emerging in apparently even greater numbers than before the fire. In summary, life, we find, is beginning to emerge, re-emerge, out of a context of devastation. Well, so too, when our text opens in Isaiah 11, the prophet depicts not just one local area, but rather the world in a state of devastation. Now, in Isaiah's own day, living in Judah in around the 700s BC, God's people, the nation of Judah, uh, were in quite a pickle. They were being overrun by foreign nations. Their cities were being looted and destroyed one by one. They had been caught up in the international turmoil and conflict of the day, and they were paying a heavy price. And to make matters worse, they were being shepherded through this devastating turmoil by horrible kings who were incapable of navigating that conflict well. In fact, as each new king arose, they would, for the most part, eat out, each outdo their father in incompetence until it finally looked from Isaiah's perspective as if God's people would be trampled nearly out of existence. But beyond the devastation brought about by international conflict in the 700s BC, the roots of Judah's devastation so far ago reach much deeper than international conflict at one point in human history, and they extend much further back in history than anything or anyone in Isaiah's own day. Ultimately, Judah's issues that Isaiah keys us into in this text are issues that are rooted in human pride, in arrogance, in autonomy, and ultimately in sin. They're roots that explain the devastation in Isaiah's own day, but they're also roots that explain the devastation experienced in any age, in any location, including in our lives too. To put it another way, the fundamental problem that Isaiah sees in his own day is the same problem that explains why the world is the way it is today, why humanity's dreams for utopia or paradise always fall short why even the most charismatic and capable leaders always disappoint, and why the world is incapable of rising from the ashes on its own. The problem is sin. And yet into a world devastated by sin, Isaiah sees the emergence of a king and a kingdom that would finally renew that which we, despite modern human ingenuity, could never renew on our own. And so our, our big idea, our, our main point that we're going to be exploring as we study this text for the next few minutes is this. 
Christ's birth renews a devastated world. Christ's birth renews a devastated world. And as we explore this text, we're going to see it in two parts, two two promises, if you will, that Isaiah announces to us. First, he talks about the renewal of a king, and then he tells us about the renewal of a kingdom. So two points if you're following along, the renewal of a king and the renewal of a kingdom. You know, in preparation for the sermon, my kind wife reminded me that last year I did a four-point sermon and that I can't do that again on Christmas, so I I leave you with two points this evening. Um, You can thank me later. So first, the renewal of a king. Now, Isaiah may be speaking into a context of worldwide devastation, which indeed he is, but almost immediately when our passage opened, he sees the hope of the world emerge from really the humblest of roots. He tells us, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, if you don't know who Jesse is, Jesse was the father of King David, uh, the the greatest king in in Israel's history, Uh, the king by whom all other kings would be compared, and, and the king from whose line the Messiah was one day expected to emerge. But while David was a great king in Israel's history, he didn't emerge from royalty. Rather, if we would go back to the book of 1 Samuel, for example, we would find that that David was born to an average man of of an average town named Bethlehem. This man's name was Jesse. And this is the Jesse in view in verse 1. He's depicted here as a stump. Um, He's depicted here as the last remaining visible portion of a tree. You see, Isaiah is is looking back. He's looking out at at the war-torn, devastated landscape of his own day. He understands the spiritually diseased roots that have gotten them to the place that they're in. And he sees that nearly every subsequent king who has sat on the throne of David has failed to usher in the idyllic kingdom for which the souls of God's people have always hungered and thirst for. But when it looked like that royal line was cut down to an embarrassingly low and humble point, when it looked like that line was nearly extinct, just before the stump grinder goes to work, a sapling, a new Davidic king emerges out of the stump of Jesse. As Isaiah continues in verses 2 through 5, he tells us more about this renewed Davidic king who would one day emerge. And it doesn't take long for us to see that this king in Isaiah 11, the, the king who we know in retrospect as King Jesus, is more than equipped to be the hope for a devastated world that none of Judah's kings could ever be. Because just look at how Isaiah describes this king. First, he describes as a king who's outfitted with spirit-endowed capacities that go well beyond that of any great human king who has ever come or has ever gone. He's given wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Friends, in summary, this is a divine king. Then we hear, as Isaiah continues, that this king isn't like someone who never lives up to his potential. How many of us have witnessed the tragedy of someone with all the potential in the world, every opportunity to succeed, but then they crash and burn? Someone who gangs a following, but then the cracks in their character are exposed, their true colors emerge, and they, uh, they go out just as quickly as they came in. In one sense, King Solomon was like that in Israel's history. But for this king, who Isaiah looks forward to, Isaiah tells us that his capacity for greatness actually transcends or translates into real, tangible greatness. 
In verses 3 through 4, we hear that this king acts in a way that transcends anything human or ordinary. For example, ordinary judges would be called really in any time or in any place to decide disputes by what they see and hear, and that would be expected of a human judge. But this king, well, this king penetrates to the inward depths of the human heart. This king isn't impressed or influenced by the various facades that we present to the world. Rather, he sees our true motives for what they are. He knows the true loves that lie at our core and animate everything we do. He's neither partial to the poor nor to the rich. Justice is his MO, and in him lies the power to actually deal with evil in this world. So Isaiah looks to the future, and he sees that finally, one day, there would be a king who, unlike any of Judah's kings, would be worthy a king who would be worthy of submitting everything that we are underneath his kingship. There's a story um, earlier in the Bible that I think is somewhat instructive at this point. Um, Earlier in the Bible, uh, in Israel's history, uh, well before the days of Isaiah, uh, the king of Israel named Ahab and the king of Judah named Jehoshaphat, they decided one day to partner together and to form an alliance with each other to go out to war against some nation in the region. And in the lead up to that war, uh, while these two kings were making preparations together, uh, we read that Ahab, in the presence of Jehoshaphat, decides to consult all of his prophetic counselors. He gathers about 400 prophets together, none of whom are Isaiah. Isaiah is not in the picture at this point. But he gathers about 400 prophets together to verify whether or not he and his friend, now Jehoshaphat, should go off to war. And as all these prophets gather together before Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they all say the same thing. They say, you're good, King Ahab. Go out and fight because the Lord's going to give victory to your hand. But while Jehoshaphat watches all of this unfold, maybe with a little bit of jealousy as well, he, he hears Ahab's counselors tell him what he wants to hear, and he, he asks Ahab if there's another prophet, maybe a prophet of the Lord who they could check with too. But to that, Ahab responds, quote, there is yet one man who we may inquire. His name is Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies anything good concerning me, but always evil. You see, for Ahab, Truth wasn't part of the calculation. He wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. Well, friends, when we hear everything that Isaiah says in our passage about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, the one whose birth and reign he anticipates, there's no doubt that Jesus Christ is a king who dwarfs every other human king in history and every other sage or leader that the world has ever produced. But this then leaves us with the question, Do you want this king? Do you want this king? Or rather, are you being shepherded through life, even right now, by lesser kings and inferior gods, terrified of what would happen if Jesus really had unfettered access to the priorities of your heart? You see, there's something about the human condition where we love to be affirmed in what we already think is right or good. Now, we may welcome challenges from time to time. I'm certain that nearly all of us would, if pushed, at least give lip service to the idea that being challenged is good for us. But ordinarily, that's only true insofar as those challenges don't take us far to a field of what we've already assumed to be right and good and true. But friends, King Jesus is dangerous. 
Because King Jesus overturns the assumptions that the world carries about itself, about humankind, and about God. His wisdom penetrates to the depths of our soul and challenges what we find wise in this world. And he doesn't simply fine-tune the way that we think about this world. Rather, he puts us on a completely new path. And he rearranges our allegiances in the process by placing himself at the center of all things. Jesus Christ, friends, is dangerous. But he's also good. And in his goodness, he, he never tramples the weary simply because they're weary. He doesn't go after the poor in spirit simply because they are the poor in spirit. As one author puts it, he will not step on the little people in pursuing his project. He doesn't steamroll over people like we're so often tempted to do in the pursuit of our own priorities and the pursuit of our own glory. Rather, he invites the dejected of this world, to find a kind of rest and security in him that this weary world could never offer. And so if this Jesus is not king over your life, well, Isaiah would have you forsake all other allegiances and submit yourself to the one who is most certainly dangerous, but also good. The one who came into this world as a royal baby, but who now reigns as the king of kings. And if this Jesus is king over your life, well then the challenge is to let his reign challenge the vestiges of human autonomy and pride that you're still clinging to. Jesus is the ideal king that the world could never produce because he's the divine king who was sent from above. And in the process, he leads us exactly where the human heart longs to be led. In short, into a renewed kingdom into paradise. And when we turn to the next half of our passage, we see that the kingdom that Jesus brings his people into is really a kingdom of paradise. When we look at verses 6 through 9 of our passage, we see that Isaiah depicts now the radical contrast to a world devastated by sin. And at first blush, this looks like a world that we would find perhaps in a child's book. We read that the wolf and the lamb are friends that lions devour grass rather than other creatures, and the child plays with snakes and leads the animal world. But what Isaiah envisions here doesn't belong to the creativity of a children's book author. Rather, he envisions the very historical culmination of the world. When Jesus Christ, who came 2,000 years ago as the perfect king, comes again, and in his second advent comes to consummate, or to culminate his kingly reign over all the earth. Understand that when Christ comes again, he'll restore in full what was lost at Eden before Adam and Eve thrust the world into sin. The conflict that characterized Isaiah's world and, and the conflict that characterizes ours, Isaiah looks forward to a day where that's over. Death that's inescapable in this world will cease. And rather than being subdued by this world as we so often are, Isaiah envisions a situation when the curse of the fall would be lifted and reversed and mankind through Jesus Christ would have dominion and enmity between man and serpent would cease. But friends, this idyllic vision of the future that Isaiah casts doesn't result because of some sort of ceasefire between God and mankind. Rather, this vision of a renewed kingdom, a kingdom devoid of all trace of sin and death, comes about because King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has conquered. First, 
He conquered 2,000 years ago when he took on human flesh to live as the second Adam and to reign as the better David. When we think back to, to the first Christmas, perhaps what most immediately comes to our mind when we think of Jesus is that of his humbleness. But even as a baby, what we'll see when we read through some of the texts in Matthew and Luke in just a moment is that Jesus is recognized by the wise men. He's recognized by the shepherds to be what He truly is, even as a baby in a manger. He's recognized to be the king over the universe, a king who had come to do what kings do, a king who had come to reign and conquer. And in Christ's first advent, He did that. But what our passage also anticipates here is His second advent, when Christ will come again to complete His conquest, and the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord, and He will reign forever and ever. Isaiah paints this picture of a new Eden, uh, but this new Eden also surpasses that of the first Eden, because no longer is God's glorious presence confined locally to a garden. Rather, it extends like a canopy to fill the earth. We read in the close of our passage, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, perhaps we look at this future vision of paradise and the implication that war and conflict and death are no more, and that all sounds pretty good to us. An environment like that really would be paradise. But for Isaiah, what makes this paradise isn't first and foremost the absence of those things, Rather, it's the glorious presence of God reigning and filling the earth. Friends, all of us have a vision, I think, of what the good life looks like. And tomorrow morning, many of us will boot up new gadgets in pursuit of that dream of the good life. I know that um, I've thought about many things that I would do or make if I had a billion dollars, and I'm sure you have too. You see, all of us have a particular picture, a particular vision of what paradise would look like if it was within our capacity to bring it about. And if you're not sure what your vision of the good life is, well, then simply think back to those times where you've said something like, if only, if only I had this, or if only those people would stop acting like that and start acting like this. However you answer those questions, that's a pretty good window into your view of the good life. But let me ask you this, in your vision of the good life, in your vision of paradise, if you could have all that your heart longed for, who would be at the center of all that? Who would be in control? And perhaps the scariest question of all, if you got everything in your vision of paradise, do you really think that it would live up to the hype? You see, Isaiah also gives us a picture of the good life. He gives us a picture of paradise or utopia, that puts all of our little self-centered visions of paradise to shame. The Bible's vision of paradise isn't so narrow and shallow as ours so often are. It's cosmic. It's the only one that, that can actually live up to the hype. And more importantly, it's a vision that places not you or me at the center of the universe. Rather, it places the Lord at the center of all things. This vision of the future, then, is a, is a vision that challenges our own dreams of paradise. And yet, at the same time, it also calls us to something very real and very tangible in the present. It calls us to decenter ourselves and the kingdoms that we're intent on building. 
and to instead recenter our hopes on the Lord and on the kingdom He's already brought through Jesus Christ in His first advent and the kingdom that He will most assuredly bring in His second. In a few minutes, we're going to hear the story of Christ's advent. We're going to hear the, the fulfillment of these many and great promises as we deal with a couple texts in the Gospels, when we'll read how the Son of God came into the world and was born of the Virgin Mary. We'll hear how He stepped into a devastated world, and when He did so, how a weary world rejoiced. Friends, like Isaiah, we too live in a world where it seems as if human pride and autonomy and sin has free reign. But the difference for us is that Jesus Christ is the King who has already come into the world 2,000 years ago to die for our sins. At present, He is the King who reigns for us in the heavenly places, and He is the King who the Bible promises will indeed come again in the future to usher in paradise. And so, as we reflect on this story of Christmas then, don't just see Jesus as a model of humility, although of course He is, but rather submit to this Jesus as the King of the cosmos. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we indeed live in a world where it seems like human sin and autonomy and pride often have the last word. Lord, it can be discouraging and weary when we're confronted by the sin of this world, and especially when we're confronted by our own sin and how we just can't seem to get it right. But Lord, would you point us, as we're so often tempted to look to ourselves, would you point us instead to Jesus Christ, the one who came, died, was raised, reigns in the heavenly places, and who you promise will come again. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.